some things are a lot more worth doing than others. And that when I say that, I'm not just saying to me they're more worthwhile than others. I think there's a kind of standard external to me and not, and that isn't reducible to what everybody thinks there is that makes some things more worthwhile than others. Collecting the biggest ball of string in the world is less worthwhile than curing the coronavirus. Uh, you know, one could question that, but then if one questions that, one's still appealing to standards by which if one's wrong, one will come to see that as wrong and that where it's, again, there's a fact of the matter. So yeah, I do believe that. And I believe that therefore, you know, when, when we ask ourselves, you know, is this, is what I'm doing with my life worth doing? Yeah, some answers are better than others. Hi, I'm Dr. Devin Sanchez-Curry, and you're listening to Dialogues, Meditations, and Analyses, a companion podcast for the Problems of Philosophy course I teach at West Virginia University. You just heard the philosopher Susan Wolf articulating her view that objective standards of value play a role in determining whether or not somebody is leading a meaningful life. On today's episode, Dr. Rob Willison and Dr. Lindsay Fiorelli will rejoin the podcast to continue our conversation on the meaning of life by analyzing Wolf's account of what makes activities meaningful. After bidding adieu to Rob and Lindsay, I'll then turn to a more specific question highly pertinent to this course. Is the activity of studying philosophy meaningful? What's the value of philosophy supposed to be, anyway? What is philosophy, again? To help answer these questions, let's turn, without further ado, to this semester's final... Notes on reading. Susan Wolfe's PhD supervisor was Thomas Nagel, whose thoughts on the absurd we discussed last week. Wolfe thinks there's much more that can be said about a meaningful life much more that can be said about the details that make a life meaningful, than her mentor led on. To begin our conversation in this episode, Rob is going to introduce Wolf's fitting fulfillment account, according to which meaning in life has both a subjective component, the requirement that somebody feels fulfilled by their activities, and an objective component, the requirement that the fulfilling activities be objectively valuable. I'm then going to offer a couple of objections to Wolf's argument that the objective component is necessary, and Lindsay will offer responses to my objections on Wolf's behalf. Finally, Rob will provide his own original scholarly take on the meaning of life. Here's Rob. There's one take on Wolf, and you see it articulated in the introduction to this volume by um, hmm. Stephen Macedo, where Wolf is arguably trying to answer a different question than the one that's definitely animating Camus and to some extent animating Nagel, at least to dismiss, if not to engage, um, which is that like her project is less cosmic in scope than Camus. She's, in Macedo's words, she's not addressing the question of the ultimate meaning of human life and it isn't her project to quote-unquote fend off existential dread. Instead, what she's trying to do is give an innovative account of the meaning of life that highlights and shows a very important aspect of, you know, what makes, what makes an everyday life worth living that's currently underappreciated. 
but she isn't sort of taking on these more grandiose pretensions of showing that life is meaningful from the perspective of the universe or, you know, providing an antidote to the kind of existential dread that would, that would lead you to give up or commit suicide. And it's worth, in the, in the contemporary literature, there are lots of distinctions now being made within the meaning of life literature. But one way of thinking about this that, that some people use is basically to distinguish between meaning of life, which is this, this more cosmic question of does life have meaning within the context of like the larger universe of things and values within, it, within which it arises, versus the question of meaning in life, as opposed to meaning of life, which is like, what aspects of our lives give it meaning? Like what can make our lives meaningful in the, in the sense that articulates this kind of subjective need that people have when they're going to therapy or, you know, et cetera. Right. I, I think um, that to her credit, while I do think Susan Wolf wants to distance herself a little bit from say the, the religious flavor of the giant question, I do think she's actually has more traditional ambitions than that way of thinking about things. And that she is more in conversation with Camus than that way of characterizing things implies. But still, I think it's a useful, it's a useful way of of taking one kind of perspective on what she's up to. So let's just start by thinking about this question of like meaning in life. Like what is it that makes your life meaningful that, that would justify a feeling that your life is meaningful or would make you think someone else's life is meaningful you know, and the converse and see how that intersects with the bigger questions or doesn't later. I'll just give you a quote to give you a reason to think that this is in the same conversation. The kind of reasons that Wolf uses her theory of meaning to highlight and explain that she thinks is overlooked, which she calls reasons of love. Here's how she describes those reasons. And this is why I think ultimately the the final place we get to is going to be totally in line with what we've been talking about so far. She says, these are reasons and motives that engage us in activities that make our lives worth living. They give us a reason to go on. They make our worlds go round. They and the activities they engender give meaning to our lives. So that makes it sound kind of like Macedo is, is not quite right. And that if Wolf's answer is right, she's giving an answer to exactly the kind of question that Camus is posing. Here's another quote from later. She says, but whether a life is meaningful has specifically to do with whether one's life can be said to be worthwhile from an external point of view. A meaningful life is one that would not be considered pointless or gratuitous, even from an impartial perspective. I mean, I think this is Wolf really clearly wanting an account of meaning in life that partially rebukes Nagel's argument that we can see our lives as totally meaningless in a meaning of life sense from a third person perspective. I, yeah, so I, I think Wolf is, is trying to, to offer a conception of what it is that makes a life meaningful. And she offers it as, as kind of a synthesis of two popular views about what makes life meaningful, each of which she, she ends up arguing is insufficient on its own, but together she thinks they do the trick. And, and so the first one is kind of a, a find your passion view of life's meaning or a fulfillment view of life's meaning, uh, that your life is meaningful if you spend it engaged in activities that you're passionate about, that bring you fulfillment. And you can start to get a sense of maybe why Wolf objects to this view, or or rather she finds it insufficient on its own. She says, according to this view, it doesn't matter what you do with your life as long as it's something that you love. 
Um, and so she thinks that's one, one thing that's in the air. It's like, if your life is feeling meaningless, someone might say to you, like, pursue your passion, find what you're passionate about and do that. Right. The second common view of what makes a life meaningful that she engages with is, is a larger than oneself view of life's meaning. The idea is that your life is meaningful when you contribute to values or projects that are larger than yourself or independent of yourself or transcend your own interests in some way, you know, like throwing yourself into um, your relationships with other people or some kind of project of moral reformation or an intellectual project to gain knowledge. Those can all feel like projects that are bigger than just us. Maybe I'll give some examples now for why she thinks neither of these does it on its own. She introduces some characters. So for the find your passion view of life's meaning, it's like suppose that you satisfy that condition. Well, she's going to give you a picture of a life in which that condition is satisfied, but intuitively the person's life is not meaningful. I don't mean to suggest that her case rests only on intuition because I don't think it does, but starting point. So for example, she thinks, you know, like if you're Tom Cruise's personal assistant and you're like super passionate about that endeavor and you think that like everything Tom Cruise thinks is of like the utmost cosmic importance and there's no more valuable thing that you could do than like sorting out all the blue M&Ms from Tom Cruise's, you know, bowl of M&Ms because he doesn't like blue M&Ms. You could be incredibly passionate about that and incredibly fulfilled in sort of the penumbra or the aura of Tom Cruise's fame. But it might be ultimately that like what you're doing is completely worthless and that Tom Cruise is a clown who's not very good at acting and is actually degrading other people's souls with his shenanigans and that, and that it's a pathetic vanity of, of a useless ant that doesn't want blue M&Ms and you're enslaved to the arbitrary whims of this, you know, mediocre human being who for random reasons has become famous. And so actually your life isn't really meaningful. I have nothing against Tom Cruise, by the way. <laughs> Sounds like you do. No, I just, that's what it has to be for the example. Okay? No, I'm just... You know? um, <laughs> And her example is that you're the assistant to a celebrity. So I just thought I would give it a little bit more color. And, and, and Wolf thinks, okay, like in that case, in, in that case, your life is, is not really meaningful. You're passionate about what you're passionate about, but it doesn't deserve your passion. Or like if you, you know, if you have a friend and like romantically, she's really into this dude, but like it, she's utterly deluded. The guy is, is an incredible mediocrity. doesn't deserve her love at all. She's way better than he is. But all she does is like devote her life to, you know, loving him. It's, it's not a worthy target of her love. He, his quality doesn't justify her passion. And so for that reason, right. her life lacks meaning. So those are people who, who find their passion, but Wolf thinks they still don't have meaningful lives or at least not fully meaningful lives. On the other hand, there, there might be people who meet the second condition. They're engaged in something that has value larger than themselves, but they're not fulfilled by it. It's, they're not passionate about it. And in those cases, again, Wolf thinks something essential for a meaningful life is missing. And so, for example, like you might be a conscripted soldier in a just war, but you wanted to be an artist um, and you hate being in this war and, and you're doing it because you're forced by your government. It may be that, that what you're accomplishing, say in World War II, is very valuable from the big picture, but because you're alienated from your activity and you're not passionate about what you're doing and you're not receiving a, a sense of subjective fulfillment from that endeavor, your life is lacking in meaning. Or you know, if, if you're in a traditional society and you're a housewife and you really wanted to be a scientist, it could be that you know, raising your children 
and, and keeping the house and maintaining the family's social connections is a deeply important thing to do from the big picture that is much larger than your own narrow interests. But if you don't find it fulfilling, if you find it utterly tedious, and what you really dream about is making a scientific discovery that maybe you had the capacity to make, again, your life is lacking in meaning, even though it meets the condition that the larger-than-yourself advocates are laying out. And so Wolf thinks both groups are onto something, but what you really need to do is synthesize those two views. And so we get actually three conditions, which is that you have to satisfy the first condition, the activities, the relationships, the projects that you're engaged in, you have to feel passionate about, and you have to be fulfilled by. However, those activities also have to justify your passion. They have to be worthy of your love. They have to have a value that's larger than yourself in some sense. So that's kind of an objective condition. That's a, that's a condition that you can't meet simply on the basis of your subjective attitudes. You have to have both of those. So that's two conditions. But she also has a third, more subtle condition, which is that those two conditions need to be met in a way where they have a certain re- kind of relationship in your life. Right. And so the counterexample for someone who has the first two, but not the third, is someone who, for example, is like a marijuana smoker, and they just spend their whole life lighting up doobies and playing GoldenEye or whatever people who aren't 40 play on more advanced video game systems, you know, when they're lighting up. Not that I would know even for my own generation <laughs> what that would be. I'm just guessing, okay? But, you know, they may do that and they may be passionate about it. And about that person, Wolf would say, they're not meeting condition two. They're not connecting with anything larger than themselves. There's no objective value in what they're doing. GoldenEye isn't worth, you know, them investing all their life energies into or smoking weed and playing GoldenEye. But now, like, some dick philosopher comes along and is like, what if his pot (laughs) smoke is actually filtering over to his neighbor who's suffering from AIDS and is relieving the neighbor's like terrible pain. Now, actually, his activity that he's passionate about is contributing to something larger than himself. And so he does meet both conditions. And Wolf would say, okay, yeah, but guess what? There's a third condition, which is that like the passion that you have needs to be appropriately connected to the value that makes that passion fitting. And so if you're just unaware or you're not pursuing the activity for the reason of its objective value, you're still not meeting the criteria. So that's why we have that third condition. And that's the picture. So it's like you're fulfilled, but your fulfillment and your passion is justified by something that's valuable about the activity or the project itself. And your passion and activity are properly connected to that justifying value. And so examples of that would be, you know, a philosopher who loves her subject and is pursuing philosophy to learn or a scientist who wants to prove the existence of gravitational waves or a mother who stays up late at night uh, or a father who stays up late at night to sew fairy wings for his daughter on Halloween. Those are all projects that are fulfilling and engage our passions, but also seem to have a value that merits those passions. The reason that she picks examples like that is because she thinks once we recognize that this very important part of our ordinary ethical discourse, the desire for meaning, the the need for meaning, once we recognize that it's picking out activities like this, we see the poverty of traditional contemporary views of practical reason, which segregate all reasons into narrowly self-interested reasons, reasons of prudence, or impartial moral reasons, reasons that hold no matter what your situation is or who you are. 
And Wolf is saying, when I stay up late to make wings for my daughter, I'm not doing either of those things. I'm not doing it because it's my moral duty, but I'm not doing it because it's in my selfish interest either. I'm doing it because I love my daughter. And that is a third kind of reason that we act that makes our actions rational and rightly motivates us that gets lost if you just have this dualist approach. And so actually she has, you know, in addition to the fact that I do think she's, she is trying to answer Camus' question, it also has this salutary result for the way that we've been thinking about reasons in action and rationality and motivation in action traditionally. So now I'll frame the thing about external standards as an objective <laughs> view. So... I think there are ways of doing this both with regard to her negative cases, her cases of meaninglessness, and with regard to her positive cases. So let's start with the latter. So she says, quote, philosophy and basketball appear to meet the objective criterion of having their source of value outside of the subject, um, since the value of these activities, whatever it is, does not depend on one's own contingent interest in them. And that's all she says to back up this claim. And as someone who happens to love both philosophy and basketball, it's just not at all obvious to me that this is true. You're better at one than the other. We're not going to say which is which. We won't reveal which. Uh, right. In particular, both philosophy and basketball are activities I engage in that are really hard to justify and explain the value of to people who aren't already um, sort of prone to appreciating them. Think about sports, right? Some people are really into sports and get a ton of meaning out of them. And people who aren't really into sports tend to just not get it. They don't get why people would care so much about, you know, a bunch of guys playing a game that some Canadian dude invented in order to get teenagers to exercise at the beginning of the 20th century, and why people love not just playing the game, but like watching it intently and playing fantasy basketball and yada, yada, yada. And while I'm on the side of people who think that basketball is extremely meaningful, I don't have an argument for that from an impartial perspective. All I have is a sort of first-person perspective, appreciation of the ways in which I find engaging in basketball and basketball-related activities fulfilling. And so I worry that some of her paradigm examples of meaningful activities seem to fulfill the subjective condition without fulfilling the objective condition. I see where you're coming from, Devin. I think Wolf is pretty lenient or loose with uh, mapping out what are the things that have this objective value right? Like, what is it that would make my life meaningful? I mean, I don't know if this this is something you could further object to, but I think that she doesn't really want to answer that question entirely. And she sort of makes it, um, what's the word, quite inclusive. I read her as being quite inclusive about the things that can satisfy that objective condition insofar as like they rule out these easy cases that most of us would agree don't satisfy it. And insofar as they're kind of outside of ourselves in some way. Now, I mean, I, I don't know that that's actually... You know, that's not quite an answer to what you're saying, Devin. And I think your whole point is, okay, well, we kind of need more from that, right? We need more to answer what it is that makes these satisfy the objective condition. And until you spell that out more, we're left with kind of more questions than answers. Yeah, it's just not clear to me in virtue of what she does claim that the value of yeah. philosophy and basketball is. For is example, of, yeah. 
the point of view of people who enjoy them. I mean, let me let me just try to reformulate Devin's objection to kind of respond to what Lindsay is saying, and then let me say what I think Wolf would say. And I do think, like, one of the things that Wolf would say is kind of exactly what I take Lindsay to be saying, which is something like, look, I'm not wrapped up in defending any particular example. So it's like, you know, maybe basketball is meaningless. It's, it's, it's nothing about any particular case that my argument is resting on. On the other hand, I think right. like Devin's point could be to reply back to that. Look, I mean, like if you're so squeamish about discriminating on any particular case, maybe that should indicate to you that preserving this like transcendent basis for discrimination shouldn't be there. It's like yeah. you're afraid to wield it because anytime you wield it, there are a million reasons why that people can bring up for why like you didn't wield it correctly or it didn't it didn't succeed in making the discrimination that it was supposed to make not to mention that i do find basketball and philosophy extremely meaningful right well so right I, my... but i think that's how wolf would respond i think she would say but like look i'm still not toothless because like here's where i'm going to put my foot down if you were to be asked to explain why you find basketball meaningful makes your life meaningful as opposed to just you enjoy it. You know, you find it to be like a selfishly pleasurable thing to do. Then you are going to start appealing to aspects of that activity that make it intelligible as valuable for reasons other than your taste for it. And so even though I'm not going to say anything about particular cases, what I do expect you to re- to share is my intuition about what the content of a justification or a defense of something as a meaningful activity is going to include. Yeah, so here's where the objection that has to do with her negative cases comes in. Because I think that the objection from somebody who's skeptical about the objective component to the negative cases is, are these real people who are really totally fulfilled by smoking pot and playing GoldenEye or by being Tom Cruise's personal assistant? Because I can't actually imagine a human being whose entire life is wrapped up in those things and who finds it totally fulfilling. Um, And if they do find it fulfilling, I bet it's because if you ask them questions about it, they'd actually reveal that there are many more sort of subtle dimensions to those activities than Wolf is letting on. Like maybe the person just really loves doing things for another human being and they found a job and these jobs are rare where they can fulfill this this, uh, commitment to just making somebody else happy. And it's also a job that leaves them with quite a lot of free time to pursue their poetry on the side, right? Um, It just doesn't seem to be the case that Tom Cruise's assistant is really going to be fulfilled just being servile to Tom Cruise. If they are fulfilled, it's because there's a lot more going on there than Wolf is letting on. Okay, so what's the objection to her there? The objection is that maybe fulfillment is enough. Maybe you just need the subjective condition because in order to have that subjective condition fulfilled you would actually have to be engaging in the sorts of activities that Wolf does find meaningful. It would actually have to be something like philosophy or basketball rather than something like pot smoking and mm-hmm. golden eye playing or, or he, being talking. What, he, what he's trying this. to do is negate, is negate, this is also what height does. I mean, I think it's to like, it's to negate 
the force of the yeah. intuitive counterexamples that lead you to, to adopt the objective right. condition, right. which is just to say, look, actually one of two things is going on. Either like these are just utterly psychologically implausible examples. And while there might be people like this, they're not finding their lives fulfilling. So it's not really a counterexample to, the, to just the fulfillment view alone. Or if they are finding that those activities infuse their lives with meaning, what's happening is just that like we're failing to appreciate the aspects of those activities that would make, make them cease to seem like counterexamples. So like you could have said that about, you know, a lot of people would say that about video games, but actually that's just from like ignorance about the, the richness the, and, you know, the incredible life world and social embeddedness of video games and video game culture that puts those things on a level with literature and other endeavors that people used to disparage that we now recognize as totally meaningful ways. And so, and so basically, like these counterexamples that, that motivate you to want to be able to discriminate between the, object, the objectively worthwhile and not, they don't actually arise. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I get, I get that, but I feel like Wolf would just, I mean, I, I think those examples are just examples where the objective criterion is fulfilled and we just didn't realize it. Right. Right. But it may be that the objective criterion is fulfilled, but they're supposed to be objections because they're supposed to show that we don't need the objective criterion. We don't need to care about whether the objective criterion is fulfilled in order to say that those are meaningful lives because true fulfillment Right. True meeting of the subjective criterion is enough to capture the lives we take to be meaningful and exclude the lives we don't take to be meaningful without ever asking questions about detached third person value. But if it is the case that in order to be fulfilled, you have to kind of essentially what's happening is you're caring about something that has these kinds of objective conditions. No, you just have to really be fulfilled. You know what it is to live your life and be fulfilled by some activities and not fulfilled by the others, right? You know what it is to spend a week where you just watch TV and it just feels like a wasted week versus spend a week where you really are engaged in some activity and feel fulfilled by it. But the reason you feel fulfilled or not fulfilled has to do with your kind of understanding of whether or not those things have some objective quality to. I mean, at least that's what I took for this video game example to be, right? The reason that it is in fact fulfilling is because, as Rob was saying, it can have these sort of social benefits. And in any way, in any case, Devin, I thought that what you were saying is what makes me feel fulfilled is that I do think that there's something worthwhile about the thing that I'm partaking in and that it's worthwhile aside from the fact that I'm interested in it. It's worthwhile for these other reasons, which I can then No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it, it would be question begging of Wolf to say what you just said, right? It would be question begging for her to say that the reason you're fulfilled is just that you're finding these objective values, right? right? She needs these cases to do the work of convincing us that fulfillment, mere fulfillment isn't enough, and thus that we also need this objective component. The objective component. Sorry, yeah. And it seems to me that mere fulfillment might be enough without ever asking the question of whether or not this objective component has to be there in order to generate fulfillment. I guess my response was, I thought that the examples that you gave, Devin, seemed to be examples in which 
the reason that I find something fulfilling is that I think that the thing that I'm doing has some objective qualities to it that make it worthwhile. No, because I don't feel that way about, say, philosophy and basketball, right? I find them extremely fulfilling, but not because I think that they have this value in a way that's detached from my contingent interest in them. Really? I what? find them fulfilling because they really they really are compelling when I pursue my interest in okay, them. Okay, and if I asked you why, why do you play basketball? What What's fulfilling about it? What would you say? Uh, th- this is my point, is I have a really hard time explaining it to somebody who just doesn't already get it. You know, some quirk of my psychology is that I really love the dynamics of playing basketball and being a basketball fan and so on and so forth. And I can explain those dynamics to you, but I don't think I can explain them in a way that, you know, appeals to some objective value that just anybody could necessarily find in basketball. I think I'm just explaining why basketball clicks for me. Say I am someone who understands the value of basketball. What is an answer that you would give when I ask, you know, why do you, why do you play basketball? I mean, you wouldn't just say, so you'd say, oh, I find it fulfilling. And then I'd say, well, what's fulfilling about it? And I feel like all Wolf needs, maybe I'm misunderstanding her, is for you to say something like, you know, well, I enjoy playing with my friends or I, well, like there are reasons that you would give, right? Sure. And it's, I guess it's not necessarily about you being able to convince just anyone that basketball, maybe I'm reading her way too charitably, but I didn't take her to be saying that like, you should be able to convince just anyone or every single person should agree that basketball is, has these objective things, right? Um, It's just that Do you see what I'm saying? Like, you should be able to give me reasons that are outside of yourself for why this is something fulfilling to you. And then we can go ahead and hypothetically add that to the list of things that are objectively fulfilling, even though even though not everyone would necessarily agree to it. Yeah, so I don't I think I I would give you reasons, but they wouldn't be reasons that. I at least recognize as being outside of myself. So they'd be like aesthetic reasons, right? They'd be like, I really appreciate the beauty of the game. I really find That's outside it- of yourself. That's outside of yourself. You're appreciating... Sorry, keep going. Now I'm just getting way too into this because you said aesthetic and then I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean, it depends on your theory of aesthetics. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I don't think those reasons are obviously reasons that can be appreciated from a detached point of view. You know, I find one work of art beautiful and don't find another work of art beautiful. And I don't necessarily take that to be because one is objectively beautiful right. and the other isn't. I take it to be a matter of my sentiments and reactions, right? And I would give the same sorts of reasons for why I love basketball. Yeah, I guess, you know, I guess I think that that's okay to her. I don't think that she needs it to be the case that, for instance, the quality of one work of art that you enjoy versus another work of art is some objective property that you're pointing to. I thought that what she was saying was more, hey, it's not just self-interest, right? Let's like mix that. It's not just that you have, you know, that you care about this work of art. And maybe that's what you're trying to say, Devin, but I took what for her to say, you know, it's not just that like, it makes me happy. And that's the only reason that I care about this one work of art. Instead, I'm going to mention these other things about the work of art. You know, even if it is beauty, that might be somehow subjective. It's beauty in that work of art that I'm responding to. And that is somehow outside of my own self-interest. Sure. But I just think that's a really shallow conception of the subjective component to think that it's just about sort of narrow self-interest. Like I agree with her that, Meaning is a dimension that can be distinguished from self-interest and morality. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Um, and I think that you can capture that meaning just by fleshing out what it is to be fulfilled in a way that does go beyond sort of narrow self-interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without needing to ever bring in the objective component. Yeah, I guess I would kind of push you more. I would want to be like, Devin, tell me why the hell you love basketball. And I really think that you're going to give me reasons that aren't just self-interest and can get at this more objective component. I mean, I think that you're not, I think there are reasons to love basketball, right? That that you would point to that I think would satisfy Wolf's criterion. I was going to say, even if it is like, you know, the beauty of how players look you know, on the, you know, on the court or something. I mean, that's, is that not, I feel like just that again, would satisfy her. Con- just one last thing to reiterate. Sorry. <laughs> it's not a question of whether there are reasons that could satisfy this objective criterion. I can be agnostic about that, right? The question is whether you need to bring in the objective criterion I know, yeah, in yeah, order yeah. to make sense of meaning. And it seems to me fulfillment is enough just putting aside the question of whether or not there are also uh, also objective reasons to value the things that I happen to be fulfilled by. Yeah, and then I would just say that the things that you're going to point to that you think you're only fulfilled by, I think you're fulfilled by them for reasons that you're not entirely acknowledging right now. I, I think Lindsay is doing a pretty good job of representing what Wolf's side of this yeah. debate would be. And I don't think that Wolf has either of two problems that you guys sometimes seem to be pegging her with. One, I don't think that she thinks that fulfillment is just confined to self-interest. Yeah. So like, you know, you're only fulfilled when reasons of self-interest are satisfied. But I also don't think, whether you think the strategy is bad or it would help her, I don't think she has the strategy of building in objective conditions to fulfillment itself, because that's the whole reason why she has to specify. Yeah. Right. So I do think she thinks fulfillment is a merely subjective condition, which is why she has to then modify it as fitting fulfillment that makes life meaningful, not merely fulfillment itself. Uh, And this is like the debate you guys are having. This is like the big debate that that's in this book that all the other professionals are having. Who wins? I, I, I've been, I've been, been very, you know, moral in, in doing my best to articulate all these views when I think, you know, I have a better, better answer than each of them. So put it on the table. You've got three to four minutes. Yeah, do it, do it, do it. Well, I'll just say, I guess, Devin, that, that my, my criticism um, comes from the opposite direction, where I actually think that the subjective condition is misplaced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think it, it comes from a failure to distinguish a life's being meaningful and appreciating the fact that experiencing your life as meaningful. But I, I agree with you. Keep, yeah, I agree with you. Sorry, I got excited. Anyway, whatever. This all falls out of a larger theory of meaning, obviously, that motivates it. But so, yeah, I actually don't think that fulfillment should be required. And I think one reason to think that fulfillment shouldn't be required is that it makes the lives of depressives and other people who are anxious and don't and aren't necessarily able to find fulfillment in activities that would naturally merit that feeling. It makes their lives less meaningful. And even though I understand the intuition there, I don't think it's true. That's not my reason for, you know, the views motivated by sort of more fundamental commitments for me, but I do think that's an important benefit that, yeah. So I actually think that the subjective condition is misguided. I think it's essential to appreciating the meaning of your life. And even within that, I think there's an important distinction, which is like enjoying the meaning of your life and recognizing the meaning of your life. 
right? Yeah. Because so I, I just think ful- this fulfillment, I think Wolf recognizes it's kind of a complicated and obviously like has to interact with love for her right. in certain ways. And I'm sure that she doesn't, she's obviously going to have to complicate what this subjective condition actually is. Because of course, like love is not always fulfilling, or at least I don't think it is. And so, right, I think you can recognize the ways that your life is meaningful without getting the subjective benefit, the good subjective feelings of whatever flavor from that. And contrastingly, I think that you can be enjoying your life's meaning without having reflected on exactly what's meaningful about your life so that you recognize what it is that's giving you this good feeling of fulfillment. So I think there are a couple flavors of appreciation and that all of that needs to be distinguished from life's actually being meaningful. I'm absolutely with you, Rob. That I agree. I think that's a really important distinction. Yeah, I think one way to frame this really important insight of Rob's is in terms of the Camus and Nagel, where they're confronting the problem that life just appears to be meaningless, totally insignificant. And addressing that problem of showing that life has meaning doesn't mean showing that it has good meaning, doesn't entail showing that the meaning is something that's going to make you happy, right? The point is showing that there's significance there and that significance could have a, a positive or a negative valence or a complex mix. I think there are a wealth of examples to support Rob's claim. I think we would have, you know, intuitions about someone's life being meaningful if they dedicate it to this cause, even though they're depressed or even though they're unable to actually feel any fulfillment in it. And I, I, I think that I would find those examples a lot more intuitive than some of the other ones that she gives. Thanks again to Drs. Lindsay Fiorelli and Rob Willison. As you just heard, Susan Wolfe proposes that philosophy is one example of a paradigmatically meaningful activity. That is, it's one example of an activity that's both subjectively and objectively valuable. But what is the subjective or objective value of philosophy supposed to be, precisely? What is philosophy, precisely, anyway? Answering one of these questions would go a long ways towards furnishing an answer to the other one. In our final readings for this semester, Wilford Sellers and Christy Dotson offer definitions of philosophy as an activity that's valuable because it enables the philosopher to achieve a particular aim. Dotson, for instance, writes that even though philosophers ought to pursue, quote, multiple canons and multiple ways of understanding disciplinary validation, Nevertheless, the united aim of philosophy ought to be to think through, quote, issues and circumstances pertinent to our living, end quote. Sellers, meanwhile, famously declared that, quote, the aim of philosophy abstractly formulated is to understand how things, in the broadest possible sense of the term, hang together, in the broadest possible sense of the term, end quote. Sellers went on to clarify that, quote, under things in the broadest possible sense, I include such radically different items as not only cabbages and kings, but numbers and duties, possibilities and finger snaps, aesthetic experience, and death. To achieve success in philosophy would be, to use a contemporary turn of phrase, to know one's way around with respect to all these things. Not in that unreflective way in which the centipede of the story knew its way around before it faced the question, how do I walk? But in that reflective way, which means that no intellectual holds are barred. End quote. Dotson stresses that coming to know one's way around the world also often involves showing how things don't hang together neatly. Philosophers tend to, and ought to, disrupt conventional understandings just as much as they augment them. And, as Dotson argues, that sometimes means disrupting conventional understandings of philosophy 
and its aims, as well as disrupting conventional understandings of the objects of philosophical inquiry. Both Sellers and Dotson's visions of philosophy are fully on display in the work on the meaning of life that we just discussed in this podcast episode. Wolf's fitting fulfillment account is one attempt to understand how two things, the subjective feeling of fulfillment and the objective value of certain activities, fit together, as well as how they're fitting together in the right way generates meaning in life. But as Rob Willison pointed out towards the end of our conversation, Wolf's view fails to capture the meaning that exists in the lives of depressed people, who don't always find their meaningful activities fulfilling. If Willison is right that the lives of depressives are meaningful, then the ways in which the subjective feelings of fulfillment and the objective value of meaningful activities hang and don't hang together are complicated. Wolf is focused on analyzing a positively valenced variety of meaningfulness. She wants to understand how lives are not just significant, but significant in a particular, good way, in a way that the people living the lives in question find meaningful. Willison's point is that lives can be meaningful, can be objectively significant, contra Camus and Nagel, even if they're not subjectively fulfilling. Nevertheless, in the course of arguing for this rather Dotsonian point, Willison also engages in some paradigmatically Solarzian philosophizing. In particular, in order to disrupt Wolf's conventional understanding of meaning in life, Willison articulates a comprehensive account of meaning that, among other things, clarifies how ethical meaning, the meanings of lives, hangs together with linguistic meaning, the meanings of words. As we've seen throughout the semester, not all philosophical inquiry is cleanly distinguishable from other varieties of inquiry, from science, or history, or art or theology, for instance. But Willison and Wolf are both unmistakably doing philosophy. Nobody could read them carefully and conclude that they're doing anything else. And as we've just seen, both Willison and Wolf's philosophical projects are quite well captured by the analyses of philosophy offered by Sellers and Dotson, both of whom also are, in offering those analyses, themselves obviously philosophizing. Now, Dotson may fruitfully disagree, but Sellers writes that, quote, it is the eye on the whole which distinguishes the philosophical enterprise from other more specialized intellectual enterprises. There's no topic that keeps one's eye trained on the whole more than the topic of what makes life meaningful and why that matters. Our question is what is the value of engaging in these distinctively philosophical forms of inquiry? Why want to know your way around the world in the distinctive way in which philosophers strive to know their ways around? What have you, the listener, gotten out of spending the last 15 weeks doing philosophy? That's what we'll discuss next time we're face to face. In particular, we'll use Sellers and Dotson's reflections as a jumping off point to discuss the place of philosophical reflection inside and outside of the university setting. I'll try to convince you, the listener, that you should continue throughout your career and daily life to exercise the philosophical muscles that you've been flexing for this class. That's it for this week, and for this semester. If you've enjoyed this course, or found it edifying, I strongly encourage you to take more philosophy courses in future semesters. You can always email me, next week, next year, or next decade, 
If you'd like a tailored recommendation about what to take, or if you want to follow up on anything we discussed in class. Thank you all for a fun and engaging semester. I have been Dr. Devin Sanchez-Curry. If you take philosophy of mind with me, you'll learn that some philosophers think there's a profound insight about the nature of the human self contained in that I have been radio sign-off. Anyway, I have been Devin Sanchez-Curry, and this has been Dialogues, Meditations, and Analysis.